Chapter Ten of David Elginbrod. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. David Elginbrod by George MacDonald. Chapter Ten, Harvest. So a small seed that in the earth lies hid, and dies, reviving, bursts her cloddy side, adorned with yellow locks, of new is born, and doth become a mother great with corn. Of grains brings hundreds with it, which, when old, enrich the furrows with a sea of gold. Sir William Drummond, Hymn of the Resurrection Hugh had watched the green corn grow, an ear, and turn dim, then brightened to yellow and ripened at last under the declining autumn sun, and the low, skirting moon of the harvest, which seems too full and heavy with mellow and bountiful light to rise high above the fields which it comes to bless with perfection. The long threads on each of which hung an oat grain, the harvest here was mostly of oats, had got dry and brittle, and the grains began to spread out their chaff wings as if ready to fly, and rustled with sweet sounds against each other, as the wind, which used to billow the fields like the waves of the sea, now swept gently and tenderly over it, helping the sun and moon in the drying and ripening of the joy to be laid up for the dreary winter. Most graceful of all hung those delicate oats, next bowed the bearded barley, and stately and wealthy and strong stood the few fields of wheat, of a rich, ruddy, golden hue. Above the yellow harvest rose the purple hills, and above the hills the pale blue autumnal sky, full of light and heat, but fading somewhat from the colour with which it deepened above the vanished days of summer, for the harvest here is much later than in England. At length the day arrived when the sickle must be put into the barley, soon to be followed by the scythe in the oats. And now came the joy of labour. Everything else was abandoned for the harvest field books were thrown utterly aside, for even when there was no fear of a change of weather to urge to labour prolonged beyond the natural hours, there was weariness enough in the work of the day to prevent even David from reading, in the hours of bodily rest, anything that necessitated mental labour. Janet and Margaret betook themselves to the reaping-hook, and the somewhat pale face of the latter needed but a single day to change it to the real harvest hue the brown livery of Ceres. But when the oats were attacked, then came the tug-of-war. The laird was in the fields from morning to night, and the boys would not stay behind, but, with their father's permission, much to the tutor's contentment, devoted what powers they had to the gathering of the fruits of the earth. Hugh himself, whose strength had grown amazingly during his stay at Turrypuffet, and who, though he was quite helpless at the sickle, thought he could wield the scythe, would not be behind. Throwing off coat and waistcoat, and tying his handkerchief tight around his loins, he laid hold on the emblematic weapon of time and death, determined likewise to earn the name of Reaper. He took the last scythe. It was desperate work for a while, and he was far behind the first bout. But David, who was the best scyther in the whole countryside, and of course had the leading scythe, seeing the tutor dropping behind, put more power into his own arm, finished his bout, and brought up Hughes before the others had done sharpening their size for the next. "'Take care and nae rax yourself, or sore, Mr. Sutherland. You'll be up with the best of them in a day or two. 
But giving ye to of at it aboon your strength, ye'll clean forfeitin. Take a good sweep with the scythe, at ye may have the weight of it to call through the strait, and take the nay shame at being hindmost. Here, Maggie, my do, come and gather to Mr. Sutherland. One of the young gentlemen can take your place at the binding. The work of Janet and Margaret had been to form bands for the sheaves by folding together cunningly the heads of two small handfuls of the corn, so as to make them long enough together to go around the sheaf. Then to lay this down for the gatherer to place enough of the mown corn upon it, and last to bind the band tightly around by another skilful twist, and insertion of the ends, and so form a sheaf. From the work David called his daughter, desirous of giving Hugh a gatherer who would not be disrespectful to his awkwardness. This arrangement, however, was far from pleasing to some of the young men in the field, and brought down upon Hugh, who was too hard-wrought to hear them at first, many sly hits of country wit and human contempt. There had been for some time great jealousy of his visits to David's cottage, for Margaret, though she had very little acquaintance with the young men of the neighbourhood, was greatly admired amongst them, and not regarded as so far above the station of many of them as to render aspiration useless. Their remarks to each other got louder and louder, till Hugh at last heard some of them, and could not help being annoyed, not by their wit or personality, but by the tone of contempt in which they were uttered. "'Take care of your legs, sir. It'll be ill-cutting upon stumps. Fags, he's taken the wings off of Partrick. Given he gone that get, he'll cut twa bouts at once. You'll have the scythe o'er the dyke, man. Take tent. Ha, sir, you've taken off my leg at the hip. You're shaving o'er close. You'll draw the blood, sir. Hoot, man, let alone. The gentleman's only mistaken his trade, and imagines he's howkin' a grave. And so on. Hugh gave no further sign of hearing their remarks than lay in increased exertion. Looking round, however, he saw that Margaret was vexed, evidently not for her own sake. He smiled to her to console her for his annoyance, and then, ambitious to remove the cause of it, made a fresh exertion, recovered all his distance, and was in his own place with the best of them at the end of the bout. But the smile that had passed between them did not escape unobserved, and he had aroused yet more the wrath of the youth by threatening soon to rival them in the excellences to which they had an especial claim. They had regarded him as an interloper, who had no right to captivate one of their rank by arts beyond their reach. So it was still less pardonable to dare them to a trial of skill with their own weapons. To the fire of this jealousy the admiration of the laird added fuel, for he was delighted with the spirit with which Hugh laid himself to the scythe. But, all the time, nothing was further from Hugh's thoughts than the idea of rivalry with them. Whatever he might have thought of Margaret in relation to himself, he never thought of her, though labouring in the same field with them, as in the least degree belonging to their class, or standing in any possible relation to them, except that of a common work. In ordinary, the labourers would have had sufficient respect for Sutherland's superior position to prevent them from giving such decided and articulate utterance to their feelings. But they were incited by the presence and example of a man of doubtful character from the neighbouring village, a travelled and clever ne'er-do-weel, whose reputation for wit was equalled by his reputation for courage and skill as well as profligacy. Roused by the effervescence of his genius, they went on from one thing to another, till Hugh saw it must be put a stop to somehow, 
else he must abandon the field. They dared not have gone so far if David had been present, but he had been called away to superintend some operations in another part of the estate, and they paid no heed to the expostulations of some of the older men. At the close of the day's work, therefore, he walked up to this fellow and said, I hope you will be satisfied with insulting me all to-day, and leave it alone to-morrow. The man replied with an oath and a gesture of rude contempt. I did not care the black afore my nails for any scalp-dupe of the lot of ye. Hugh's highland blood flew to his brain, and, before the rascal finished his speech, he had measured his length on the stubble. He sprang to his feet in a fury, threw off the coat which he had just put on, and darted at Hugh, who had by this time recovered his coolness, and was, besides notwithstanding his unusual exertions, the more agile of the two. The other was heavier and more powerful. Hugh sprang aside as he would have done from the rush of a bull, and again with a quick blow felled his antagonist. Beginning rather to enjoy punishing him, he now went in for it, and before the other would yield, he had rendered his next day's labour somewhat doubtful. He withdrew with no more injury to himself than the little water would remove. Janet and Margaret had left the field before he addressed the man. He went home into bed, more weary than he had ever been in his life. Before he went to sleep, however, he made up his mind to say nothing of his encounter to David, but to leave him to hear of it from other sources. He could not help feeling a little anxious as to his judgment upon it. That the laird would approve he hardly doubted, but for his opinion he cared very little. "'David, I want her at ye,' said Janet, to her husband, the moment he came home, to let the young lad wrestle himself dead that get with the scythe. His bones is but soft yet. There was not a dry steek on him, or he won half the length of the first bout. He soared this jasket as a warrant. "'Ne fear of him, Janet. It'll do him good. Mr. Sutherland's no feckless wintelstray of a crater. Did he hold his own at all with the love?' "'Hold his own?' Given he be fit for anything the day, he mount be pit and nest yourself, or he'll cut the legs off of any other man in the corn. A glow of pleasure mantled in Margaret's face at her mother's praise of Hugh. Janet went on. But I was just clean affronted with the way at the young chills behaved themselves till him. I thought I heard a tootmoot of the kind afore I left, but I thought it better to take no notice of it. I'll be with ye a day the morn, though, and I'm thinking I'll clap a rout's hand on their mouths, at I hear any more of it from. But there was no occasion for interference on David's part. Hugh made his appearance, not, it is true, with the earliest in the hairstrig, but after breakfast with the laird, who was delighted with the way in which he had handled his scythe the day before, and felt twice the respect for him in consequence. It must be confessed he felt very stiff, but the best treatment for stiffness being the homeopathic one of more work, he had soon restored the elasticity of his muscles and lubricated his aching joints. His antagonist of the foregoing evening was nowhere to be seen, and the rest of the young men were shamefaced and respectful enough. David, having learned from some of the spectators the facts of the combat, suddenly, as they were walking home together, held out his hand to Hugh, shook his head, and said, Mr. Sutherland, I'm sore obliged to ye for giving that ratch, Jamie Ogg, a good doonsettin'. He's a coarse crater, but the worst mount have meat, and so I did not like to refuse him when he came for work. 
but it's a greater kindness to clout him nor to cleed him they say ye made an awful muncy of him but it's to be hoped he'll live too thank ye there's some folk it can respect no argument but from steekit knaves and it'll feel cruel to hold it from them give any hold to give them i have had enough ado to hold my own hands off of the ted but it comes a hantle better from you mr sutherland hugh wielded the scythe the whole of the harvest and margaret gathered to him by the time it was over leading home and all he measured an inch less about the waist and two inches more about the shoulders and was as brown as a berry and as strong as an ox or ouse as david called it when thus describing mr sutherland's progress in corporal development for he took a fatherly pride in the youth to whom at the same time he looked up with submission as his master in learning and chapter 10